The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll discuss a busy week in Westminster and where it leaves Rishi Sunak. We'll be asking whether Zelensky needs to be more honest with Ukrainian people about the state of the war. And we'll be debating whether we're in the televisual dark ages again. First up. The changes needed to eliminate the risk of reformant may be delivered in the future, but they have not been shown to be in place now. The Home Secretary's appeal is therefore dismissed. That was Lord Reid, the Supreme Court President, who seems to have left Rishi Sunak's pledge to stop the boats in tatters. This news came just two days after the Prime Minister's first major reshuffle saw Suella Braverman sacked and David Cameron make a surprise return to politics. In her cover piece for the magazine this week, Katie Balls writes about Rishi Sunak's last gamble, and she joins us now along with Kate Andrews, The Spectator's economics editor. Katie, this week uh, Rishi Sunak had hoped to stamp his authority upon a fracturing party. Has he managed it? I think the jury is out. I'd love to bring you a firm conclusion there. But I think ultimately Rishi Sunak found himself in a bit of a no-win on the reshuffle in the sense that Suella Bravman, ever since uh, Rishi Sunak appointed her to his cabinet, I think she's been seen as a sign of weakness or strength um, for Rishi Sunak, depending on how he handles her. And that's because her endorsement during that second leadership contest of 2022 was seen as really significant to getting the right of the party behind Rishi Sunak and stopping Boris Johnson from gathering the momentum he needed for a comeback. She endorsed Rishi Sunak, others followed. Boris Johnson chose not to go further in the race. It didn't even go to the membership. And it seemed as though there was a deal that was done. Since Sarah Bravman's sacking, she has said, yes, there was a deal. Here are all the things he promised me. And it ultimately got to a point, I think, through various things over recent months, but particularly the week before last, when Suella Bravman made comments on rough sleeping as a lifestyle choice for some and a rogue uh, op-ed to the Times that loads around Rishi Sunak, which and in Downing Street has always been divided on the pros and cons of Suella Bravman, but they concluded he could just not keep her there. It was becoming too much of an issue for his own authority to have a Home Secretary who was freelancing that badly. Now, that means he probably picked the best of the two options he had in terms of trying to show his authority and stamp it on his party, but it still upset some some of his MPs. And I think the decision to bring back David Cameron was probably the biggest shock of the week in the sense that Suella Bravman at looked like she was on borrowed time. When David Cameron on Monday morning, I think about half an hour after Suella Bravman had got the heave ho, um, appeared on the cobble streets, I think it's one of the few times no one in Westminster outside of those in Rishi Sunak's number 10 inner circle knew what was coming. And the comeback of a former prime minister is something that Team Rishi argues brings gravitas, a sense of return of decency, a calmer period of Tory government, and will uh, 
be an asset to Rishi Sunak. Of course, the counter to that is Rishi Sunak just a month or so ago told everyone that he was the change candidate, um, upending 30 years of decision making. And to do that, axed HS2, a Cameron project. And now he seems to have changed tack and he has the face of a Tory government for quite a long period and a whole school of thinking in a great office of state. And and that is going to have consequences. The other story we heard this week was that inflation has now slowed to 4.6%, which which was one of Rishi's five pledges. What will that mean for him? And, and also, how is he doing regarding the other pledges he made? Well, he got a few hours of good coverage and relief before the Supreme Court ruled that his Rwanda scheme was illegal. Um, But, you know, there's something to be said for a couple of hours, I suppose. The inflation news is good news. Uh, Rishi Sunak at the start of the year said, judge me on this. And he also said that inflation was his number one priority. Uh, To your question, Laura, about how those other pledges are going, the answer is, is not great. Growth is stagnant. The NHS waiting list is rising. Public debt is rising. And he's just had this huge setback for his Stop the Boats campaign. So it's not going so well on those other fronts. Inflation is good news. It's good news for all of us. Um, I think the difficulty for Rishi Sunak is, is how hard do you sell this? And because those other pledges aren't going so well, they're really boasting about it. But that can be dangerous too. Number one, people don't feel better off. Whilst the inflation rate has slowed significantly to 4.6% on the year to October, down from 6.7% on the year in September, people don't feel better off because prices are still rising. And they're still rising quite substantially, more than double the Bank of England's target of 2%. So uh, people don't feel better off, they feel worse off. And the second point, of course, is is how much the government ever really controlled this in the first place. You know, I think there's a, a wave of thinking in the Treasury that the government does have some control over inflation. They can be fiscally prudent. They can stop spending so much money. They can hold back on pay raises. This is all contested, but, you know, it's, it's a legitimate point to make. But the truth is the main lever for, for getting inflation down is controlled by the Bank of England, and that's hiking interest rates. Politicians just had to sit back and watch on as the Bank of England made its very slow decision to do that. And because of that, UK inflation remains higher than it is in the US or in the Eurozone. It's really hard for politicians to truly take credit for this. But on the surface, as things stand... Rishi Sunak said he would deliver this. The numbers suggest it has been delivered. It is a good news story for the government, one that they just uh, didn't get much time to celebrate. Well, yeah, so on that point, Katie, um, one of the major setbacks on Rishi's pledges that Kate mentioned just there was the Supreme Court ruling on the Prime Minister's Rwanda scheme. What options now are available for uh, Rishi's government? As someone senior in government said to me, no pretty options. We're now in a world where there's no simple options following that verdict. How are they spelling pretty, just out of curiosity? P-R-E-T-T-Y. Okay, I'm <laughs> coming to the spelling bee near you. <laughs> now, <laughs> um, I think that it's clearly a big blow to Rishi Sunak, partly because I think the reshuffle combined with the inflation figures... If the Supreme Court had gone their way, and number 10 were sceptical it would, this could have almost been his super Wednesday, you know, the moment when the wind, you know, started to blow in a different direction and you could see the path to a Tory recovery. Instead, he's in a world where the a verdict was very damning, very difficult. It doesn't leave much room for manoeuvre. And you have Rishi Sunak saying he's going to put through emergency legislation to designate um, that Rwanda is a safe country. 
ultimately the Supreme Court does not object to the idea that you could send um, asylum seekers to another country, but it says Rwanda does not meet the standards. Um, he plans to look domestic law. Now, legal minds have already questioned this, suggesting that it is a bold, constitutionally questionable move. And you now have when we go back to the reshuffle, it's all linking together. So Ella Bravman on the back benches and she's mad as hell and she's not going to take it. And she's put out this, you know, very angry resignation letter accusing, even before the verdict came through, of Rishi Sunak failing to listen to her advice um, to prepare for defeat in the Supreme Court, suggesting it could have been done differently and also suggesting even if he had one, he wasn't going to do very well. So she's covering all her options. But as this voice on the back benches, she has her own plan that she's put forward saying your treaty is not going to work instead you need to go further and you know uh have legislation which disapplies various human rights um you know treaties and so forth including the echr and you can start to see that it's not just that rishi sunak will struggle to well it's not just that rishi sunak is going to come up against it when it comes to getting a a green light for the Rwanda scheme for an election it's also that he's facing criticism not just from the opposition but from the right of his party and I think the reshuffle and his decision to let Suella Braverman go means that's going to be much more obvious it's going to be playing out a lot more Braverman allies last night saying to me his scheme won't work now I think that she was seen as such a disruptive force in number 10 by the end of it that they felt they just had to take a risk on this so it isn't unexpected she's going to make noise but it just adds to Rishi Sunak's woes which is do you have a situation where the right become more despondent and you end up having you know factional warfare on the Rwanda scheme as well as having problems about making it work which is a bit of a nightmare for him okay just just to go briefly back to the inflation rate one of the possibilities that Katie mentions in her piece is the possibility of tax cuts maybe not this year but next year and um, Katie mentions that Jeremy Hunt feels there might be a little more headroom for this what do you make of that do you think there is any possibility that people might feel a bit less burdened by the state next year there's an irony here that in Rishi Sunak's five pledges laid out at the start of the year none of them involve tax cuts and and part of that is that uh, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt were taking over at a time where the markets had decided that the UK wasn't so trustworthy anymore when it came to its fiscal prudence, less inclined to borrow at generous um, generous rates. And it was felt that essentially there, there was no money for this. So the five pledges laid out had nothing to do with tax cuts. We're now approaching the end of the year and we're in a situation where it seems like what might save the Tory party, if anything, is going to be tax cuts. Some might argue that was always going to be the case, but because so much has gone wrong um, when it comes to some of those other pledges, it's interesting that they're now pivoting back to tax cuts. Uh, you know, the, the line from the Treasury for months has been, do not expect anything on this side of the year. We have the autumn statement next week. Don't get too excited about it. If there are to be tax cuts, they're going to be in the March budget next year ahead of an election. I feel like that position is becoming increasingly fragile. That doesn't mean Jeremy Hunt is going to splash the cash next week and do all kinds of tax cuts. But he has increasingly been hinting that if there are going to be giveaways, it will be on the business side of things to try to create some more business incentives. There's been talk in in recent weeks that actually the fiscal picture looks a little bit better than was previously assumed. And I think that pressure is ramping up for Jeremy Hunt to do something to change the current narrative that everything is going so badly wrong, apart from those inflation figures. Something the government's argued for a long time is that you can't have tax cuts when inflation is so high because they will further stimulate the economy and we're desperately trying to take heat out of the economy. 
I've only ever partially bought that. I mean, if you're going to do a 50 billion pound tax cut, maybe that's true. But if we're talking about something smaller, taking, say, a P off of income tax, the base rate of income tax or something, given how high inflation has been, that's just going to help people pay the bills a bit more comfortably. That's not going to lead to some kind of crazy fiscal stimulus within the economy. Um, so I think, again, I, I think that's always been a bit contested. But if anything, now we're, we're just in a, a fairly politically desperate time where the government is running out of opportunities to so-called have wins. And it's interesting to me that they're coming back round, at least to the tax narrative. Again, I, I think we should be looking to March next year if we're looking for the substantial stuff. But I think the pressure is certainly on even more now to deliver some kind of tax cut when everything else, almost everything else is frankly not going so well. And finally, Katie, uh, given that the Supreme Court has ruled against the government and the pressure from the Tory right, uh, as, as you have mentioned before, do you think that the government is going to look at leaving the ECHR now? So I think leaving the ECHR has always been a potential fault line for the Tory party and one that I suspect will dominate the Tory leadership contest that follows Rishi Sunak's exit, presumably after the next election if the Tories lose. What complicates it slightly is that Supreme Court judgment, they made very clear that just leaving the ECHR alone would not fix it and would not mean the Rwanda scheme got the green light. And that means I think that you're still hearing Tory MPs call for it and, you know, disapplying the ECHR, other things. But it's not the quick fix, which to a degree takes a small amount of pressure off Rishi Sunak because you can't have this group say this is the one thing you need to do and X. But Rishi Sunak has hinted, and he did this in his press conference, that if he needs to, he will take the steps so he doesn't have to listen to foreign courts, which I think is a hint that he could do it. On the flip side, you look at the appointment of James Cleverley, who has talked in the past about how you don't necessarily want to be in the club of countries that are not in the ECHR, Russia, Belarus. You look at the appointment of David Cameron, someone who is seen widely by the Tory party, at least, to be the chief leader of the Remain campaign. And they say, hang on a minute, it feels as though you move further away from it. I think that can be a slight misreading, even if James Cleverley is having to non-deny today that he once called the Rwanda scheme bat shit or bat <laughs> sh dash t depending what i'm allowed to say on this podcast um, but those who know cameron well have said to me actually the former prime minister is more punchy on the echr than you think so i think that for rishi sunak because he's very methodical if he gets to the point that he's ran out of every single other option i think you could see him thinking about taking the uk out but that is something that would divide the tory party as do many things. Thank you, Katie and Kate. Next up, Silana Mornitz writes a candid account of the current state of the war in Ukraine in this week's issue. After visiting the front line recently, she concludes that Zelensky needs to start being a bit more upfront with the population about the harsh realities on the battlefield and abandon his current line of tactical optimism. Svetlana joins us now alongside Owen Matthews, the Spectator's Russia correspondent. Svetlana, the the tone of your piece is quite different to some of the other articles that you've written for us over the past year and a half. Can you take us through why you feel less optimistic now? It must have been quite a difficult piece to have written. Right now we have a split in our government policy when the commander of our forces says that we have reached a stalemate and there will be no breakthrough if Ukraine doesn't receive a big technological advantage. And on the other side we have Zelensky saying, no, it is not a stalemate and we are exploring a new strategy how to make that breakthrough soon. 
so at first Ukrainians were quite confused because their narratives were quite different. And I think it starts like to be the right time for uh, Zelensky to make a shift from his victorious speeches, saying that victory is close, we just need one more push, three more months, and and actually to start talking about real problems at the front line, because right now there is an urgent need for mass conscription in Ukraine. There was conscription since Russia invaded last year, but right now there are much more people needed in the army and as I uh, was this summer near the front line to, like, talking to the soldiers all of them were complaining that they were short stuffed uh, that those who were fighting since February last year they many of them didn't go home uh, because there was no one to replace them and also we have to mention about the wounded uh, the fallen soldiers or just soldiers who are tired and some of them have been fighting since 2014 and have seen more war than than their families. But this topic is very unpopular and Ukrainian authorities avoid to talk about that on TV in their speeches. And while they like uh, say that everything is all right, everything is uh, it's hard, but everything is, is going according to plan, Ukrainians see on the streets military officers dragging them into conscription centers. And of course, it terrifies people and men try to flee the country. And I think the problem here is their own communication. Because when you talk constantly about that victory is imminent, then why should people agree that they should be drafted to the army? Owen, I'd love to get your opinion on Svetlana's assessment. She mentioned just there that the that the idea that the war is turned into a stalemate is an unpopular narrative, but it is one that is now starting to catch on in many people's minds. What is going to happen now then? Is is do you think do you think this narrative is bound to only start growing unless there is a breakthrough, unless something does change? Well, Svetlana's piece is excellent, and it addresses a really crucial paradox and, frankly, train wreck that Zelensky is going to face. And the cause of the train wreck is the definition of victory as a return to 1991 borders. That was not Zelensky's position at the beginning of the war, by the way, because as Mikhail Podolyak and then later the foreign minister who negotiated with the Russians through March and April during those desperate days, clearly from a position of weakness, but the Ukrainian position right at the beginning of the war was that the uh, the Ukrainian government was willing to accept something short of full NATO membership and that the future status of Crimea and Donbass could be determined at a later time. So clearly that has changed. What changed was three things. One, the West, uh, much to Ukraine's surprise, finally, after years of prevarication and failing to actually honour the Budapest Memorandum, actually came through with massive military support. The second thing is that the Russians withdrew from around Kiev. And thirdly, and most devastatingly, the horrors of Bucha and the European and all the massacres that had been perpetrated by the Russians while they were occupying those areas around Kiev became clear. So it was at that point, really only in April, that the Ukraine war aims started to become maximalist ones of actually reintegrating Crimea and Donbass. The problem is that since 2014, Partition has already happened. 
in those areas. We're talking about the rebel-controlled areas of Donbass and the Crimea. The communities are split. I haven't been to Donbass for a long time, but I've, uh, when I was there in 2014 and 2015, you know, there were you know, extremely strong feelings that the locals did not want to be part of Ukraine. So the crucial and most painful question is, if, uh, as Svetlana says, more people need to be mobilized, you need to tell them why they are going to fight and die. Are they going to fight and die to liberate people in the Donbass and Crimea who do not wish to be Ukrainians? About that point that people in Donbass uh, don't want to be part of Ukraine. I understand that you are relying on your information that you received when you went to Ukraine in 2014 and 15, but since then al- almost a decade have passed and people who actually lived under Russian control and under control of these radical forces or undercover Russian militants, actually they lived, their passports are not recognized in Russia. They can't leave that territory. They don't have jobs there. And I think if we go there right now and ask them what part of which country they really want to be made, the answer be different. So I, I think it's like put everything in general, saying all of them want to be part of Russia. And I, th- and, and, and I think in these years, a lot of things change. And also about uh, why uh, Ukrainians feel that they have the chance actually to win is because last year when they liberated the Kherson and Kharkiv region, they saw that it is actually possible. And those two big victories, they inspire them and th- think if they have enough weapons, they can actually do that. What do you think would be a better conscription rallying cry for Zelensky to admit that Ukraine is perhaps not doing so well or to keep saying that he is, that they are winning? No, I think he, you know, he records his nightly addresses every day and he gives like a speech to Ukrainians about what's going on. And I think he just needs to record a video saying things are like this, soldiers are tight, we need reinforcement, I need your help. And I think it even worked better for his ratings than what is he doing right now. And right now they are trying to reform the conscription, how it is, and they call it recruiting. It's when they offer uh, people, to they can choose the speciality they will serve in the army. So if they can work in communication supplies, they can be drone operators uh, in intelligence or other stuff. Because till now, mostly uh, men that were conscripted, uh, then the enlistment centers, they were deciding where they will go, where they will fight. They will be in infantry or in the tanks or something else. So they think that giving people a choice, how they want, what impact they, they want to do in the army, actually will help to to call up more more people. Hmm. And Owen, this this seems to be, I mean, you, you described it as a, um, earlier as a sort of paradox when it comes to how this war could eventually end uh, because something like a peace deal seems now that it's politically impossible for Zelensky anyway, given the rhetoric we've had so so far. And yet it also seems, as you said, that outright military victory has, is obviously not, has not happened in 2023. And there's sort of concern that it may not happen in 2024. So what can change? What needs to change? Well, the, well, to be precise, the paradox is that a peace deal is out of the question because that's not politically survivable for Zelensky or any Ukrainian leader. Nonetheless, partition is inevitable. It's happened. 
And if uh, Valeria Zaluzhny is to be believed, there's no real chance, realistic chance of a major Ukrainian breakthrough. So those two things, those two radically opposed things, there can be no peace deal. There's very obvious reasons not to trust Putin's word. It's absolutely fundamentally politically toxic to offer land for peace to Putin. That's not, Ukraine will become instantly ungovernable. You've got 7 million internally displaced people. You've got an enormous amount of people who have, over 700,000 people who have fought and died and spilled blood for the gains of the war. There can be no deal. However, the, the war cannot be won by Ukraine, according to Zaluzhny, unless some very unusual things happen. Unlikely things, in my opinion, happen, such as a total collapse of the Russian of Russian morale and a military uh, disaster that will cause a sort of Kherson or Kharkiv-style breakthrough. But the problem is that since that since that moment, there's been a, the, the Russians have had enormous opportunity to reinforce. And it's clear that after $60 billion of aid, the Ukrainians have got about 12 kilometers over a 1,300-kilometer front line. So that breakthrough is not, is, not going to, is not going to happen. But there's also a crucial distinction to be made, by the way, just to be very clear, following on my last points. The partition has happened in the parts of Ukraine that have been uh, under occupation since 2014. The parts that actually have a really decent chance of actually returning successfully to the Ukrainian fold, should there be a military breakdown, are those parts of Zaporozhye, Donetsk Oblast, uh, Kherson, that actually have been occupied since since 2022. There are two different stories. is the former rebel, rebel republics and the territories that have been taken since the beginning of this phase of the war. I want to say about Zaluzhny that uh, he didn't say that victory is impossible. He said that breakthrough right now with the, what Ukraine has is impossible. And after that interview for the economists, he wrote a piece for the economists saying that uh, with the headline something like what Ukraine needs to beat Russia, something like that. And he wrote down all the weapons or technologies that Ukraine needs West to provide here. So. I wouldn't say it's it's more it was more like a message to the West that give us what we need everything what we need without restrictions, or as I wrote in my piece that the West has two choices right now: or to do that, or to admit that it is impossible, and then Ukraine should look for other options or its negotiations or something else. And also about Zelensky, that yes, losing a war is of course politically politically unsurvivable for anyone. But he repeatedly said that when the war ends, he is not going to apply for other elections. He's going to step down. So I think the issue for him right now is that he wants to be remembered as a victor, not as the person who signed any peace agreements with Russia. And I remember when he just came to power, when he was elected, he said, at first, people are going to criticize me, but after I will be leaving, everybody will be crying. <laughs> so of course, if he loses, nobody's going to be crying. <laughs> and I think it's more about his reputation that stays of him as a Ukrainian president after he leaves. And just finally, you've obviously been to the front line, you've seen what happens to many of the men who end up there. Can you understand why there are so many men trying to escape conscription, as you mentioned in your piece? Of course, personally for me, I don't blame anyone because nobody was born for war and many are scared and it's normal. And as a woman, I'm allowed to leave the country, so I can't completely understand how they feel. But... 
thanks to those people who volunteered in the first months or those heroic men and women who joined the army, thanks to them we have Ukraine as a state right now. So I think people who will be brave enough and think that there is a real purpose and then there is a real chance that Ukraine can liberate its lands and that their contribution will change something, they will join and they will help. But if they will think that it is in vain, that better to negotiate now, so they won't join. That's why I think that why there is a need to be honest this to have this honest conversation between the Ukrainian government and Ukrainians. Of course, people who have relatives on the front line or live close to the front line, they know how the things are going. But we have a part of population that lives like in a peaceful life, except for Russian missiles. And they think that those 700,000 people that were conscripted are enough just to keep Russian forces where they are, but not. What if like some months will pass, they will be more wounded, more dead, more people will be tired, and Russian can have a bre- Russians can have a be- breakthrough. So now we are like in a critical moment where we need to decide like what what to do. And and just sorry, I mean, I, I wonder if, if briefly if there's a sense as we approach the end of 2023, what from the Russian side of things is there is there a sense there that the the the, the war is. Um, there's a sense of war fatigue to, to, when it comes to a stalemate, or is uh, Putin, given his status as a, as a, you know, as a dictator status, is less concerned with um, the idea of a, a ticking clock? Unfortunately for Ukraine, it's very clear that Putin is downgrading the war in terms of its prominence in the Russian public narrative. If you look at the newspaper reviews, which you can, Steve Rosenberg of the BBC does very regularly, you'll see the war is on page three, page five. I mean, it's just, you know, nobody really notices the war, particularly in the capitals of Moscow and St. Petersburg. That's entirely deliberate, it's downplayed. Putin very rarely speaks about it. The point is that they've reached a sort of stable state, an equilibrium. They're spending around 9% of their GDP, which is a lot. Uh, but on the other hand, it's they before the war, they were spending 3.5% of their GDP. And during the Cold War, the Soviet Union was spending about 40% of its GDP on, on the military-industrial complex. So it's quite bearable for Russia. Uh, oil prices are high. The IMF just upgraded Russia's economic uh, growth in 2024, forecast from uh, 1.2 to 2.4%, very uh, numbers that Britain can only envy. And the the estimate, uh, the budget estimate for the expenditure is about $110 billion dollars. Uh, Russia's going to spend on the war in, in, in on defense and security in 2024. And, you know, however much Ukraine has got uh, so far, it's been about 60 billion from the US in military aid so far over, over two years, uh, over a year and a half. So whatever Ukraine gets in terms of military aid, it's still going to be dwarfed by Russia. So there is no sense whatsoever that the really that, that the Russians are running out of steam. And when you see on sort of pro-Ukrainian sort of feeds the, the Russians doing their meat attacks, as as as, uh, as as they're as they're called by the Ukrainians, so that you know charging across fields and getting blown up in their dozens, and the tanks getting zapped by drones and so on, that is taken by uh, a lot of pro-Ukrainian channels to see to, to be evidence of Russian desperation that are, they're about to collapse. and But actually, I think that's exactly the wrong interpretation. What it is evidence of, in my opinion, is that the Russians are just fighting with people they consider to be totally expendable. 
that's why they've cleaned out the jails. That's why they they haven't actually organised a major general conscription. There is mobilisation of people with military experience, and that still continues. But that's why they're mobilising gas arbiters. You know, they just picked up fifty people in Azerbaijani wedding in Moscow recently. And that's why they're mobilising prisoners because they just want the war to be spent fought by people that that, that, that nobody cares about. And in that sense, Putin actually can just sort of trundle on. And I think in his mind, he's already won the war. He And he had his birthday party, his, his celebration party back in last September when he annexed those territories. The only thing missing from the mix for Putin is some kind of grand deal to conclude the war with Washington and Beijing. And that's not going to happen until the next US presidential election. So everything that happens between then and now is just incremental and won't make any difference. As soon as there is a new US president, then Putin can move in and start to actually negotiate for, for real. But the problem is that, I mean, the, the bottom line is that the deal that Biden is going to make and the deal that Trump is going to make is the same deal, despite massive differences in presentation, because there is only one deal, and that's essentially partition uh, along the line of control and security guarantees for Ukraine, short of full NATO membership. The rest is details. Thank you, Svetlana and Owen. And finally, what happened to the golden era of television? Zoe Strimple writes in the arts section of the magazine this week, that after a boom in quality in the early 2000s, we're now going back into a televisual dark age. She joins us now, along with James Dellingpole, our regular television critic. Zoe, firstly, could you take our listeners back to this golden age of television? What were you watching at the time and, and what made that era so great? Well, actually, my gateway drug into the golden age of TV probably wasn't something most people would consider prestige drama it was gossip girl about <laughs> 10 years after it came out but from there i sort of started to put two and two together i think okay well i homeland has been you know completely absorbing to me various other things and it just felt like for a period of time every single thing one finished one could start something else and it was all absolutely excellent so you know, what, whether so sorry was, just to interrupt but in, ter- in terms of the dates then what are we talking when do you say the golden age begins and where does it end what what's the so era? i think I think tech, I think the kind of official um, start of the golden age is something around the mid 2000s when technology seems to kind of leap ahead, allowing for kind of like extremely impressive visual. And apparently that was also the moment there were these kind of evolutions in, um, in narrative and storytelling. I mean, obviously the rise of streaming, I think was the, was the kind of real moment that there was suddenly this kind of gush of creative possibility. And all these people who'd been forced to kind of you know, look at TV as being the the like the third class citizen after film, or to f- squeeze their stuff into kind of terrestrial channels. Suddenly, have this kind of amazing these these spangly open planes, and all of this creative energy that uh, that had previously not had an outlet kind of burst out. So there was just you know, there was HBO was really important in pioneering things. Even things starting going all the way back to like Sex and the City, although that was kind of a standalone at that point. But you know, The Sopranos, The Wire. Breaking Bad, you know, just felt like one thing after the next. And, you know, I remember one, finishing binging one thing and then thinking, oh, what is, what else is there? And there was kind of Amazon had, you know, there was, there was Transparent, there was um, Little Fires Everywhere with Reese Witherspoon. And these were genuinely amazing, interesting things. And it was constant. And people kind of rebuilt their lives around this block of evening entertainment that they could count on that was, that was kind of almost replacing novel reading. That's all gone now. So why has it gone now? Why, where, where's it gone wrong? Well, I, I well, okay. So, the, I'll just start with the symptoms, which I think listeners will identify with. Suddenly, one finds oneself instead of just 
you know, racing to the sofa in the evening to kind of binge two hours of something. One spends probably the first half an hour scrolling through one's five different subscriptions, hoping to find something that catches the eye, but having long lost faith that something will. So there's this incredibly empty sense of tons of content, nothing good. And I think that might be one of the key reasons, which is that after a while, the kind of drive for content got distorted and Netflix really began to kind of go downhill and, and suddenly people started to notice, okay, I think this is about maybe just before the pandemic, I would say, there's just like, what, you know, yeah, there's tons of stuff, but all of it is absolutely rubbish. And so there started to be a change of feeling about Netflix. Suddenly every, and then suddenly it started to feel like everything else was like that. There were a few standalones like Succession um, and The Crown, I suppose, but um, basically, yeah. And then I think wokeness, various political changes, an ideological flattening out in tone and permissibility of what you could actually do kind of completely went against that original creative flourish. So it became dangerous and not worth it to take risks. And then all these things to do with casting, diversity, it just ended up squeezing, you know, what, like what we've seen in, in fiction and publishing. So, so the whole creative canvas just got, I think, just just destroyed. And, and then, of course, we've got the strikes. We've got all these other kind of production issues in Hollywood. So it's a combination of like the dimming of the creative light because of politics, stuff going on in Hollywood. And then I think a sort of just over too much quantity and which has dulled kind of sophistication and subtlety and, and left us with just incredibly kind of babyish binary emotions on TV. So yeah, I'm, I'm quite devastated by it. James, you're the, you're the Spectator's TV critic. Would you agree with Zoe that we've entered a dark age for TV? Yeah, I, I, was, I was nodding furiously throughout Zoe's, Zoe's piece. I, 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 she, I feel her pain when she talks about what it's like settling down to watch the TV of an evening. And that sense of panic and desperation, as you, as you realize, yeah, I too subscribe to about five different, different channels, you know, Paramount Plus and Disney Plus and, and whatever, and realizing that there is nothing out there that you actually want to watch. And it's really frustrating. I like a TV dinner. And, and normally, by the time I found something to watch, we, <laughs> my food's gone cold. Um, and it's, it's, it's really annoying. I also, inevitably, being me, I, I, I'm intensely irritated by the wokeification of TV. And yeah, but having said all that, I think that variations on Zoe's article could have been written at every time, uh, any time ever. And what I mean by that is that we always look back to this golden age of, of TV, when in fact, I think the nature of TV that 95 to 99% of it is absolute tosh, it's really disappointing. And the 1% or 2% is what you remember. And like in, in the last, in the last um, year, for example, we had White Lotus with um, Tom Hollander and, 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 a few, and a few others set in, in Sicily. I, I think that stands up with, with some of the best TV I've ever seen. There was, a, there was a, a series on last year which didn't get commissioned for second series, which, which I loved, called um, The Bastard Son and the Devil Himself. The offer on Paramount about the making of The Godfather, it was absolutely brilliant. Now, those were, those were the exceptions. Yes, well, in terms of the... the that element of it the the uh, how d difficult it is to find the right stuff i wonder james if i could put it to you that that yes 
as you put it, this phenomenon has always existed in terms of uh, uh, we remember fondly kind of 1% and actually the rest is sort of dross. But just given the sheer quantity of streaming services now, so many different avenues where you can turn to to get these shows, um, isn't the filtering just much harder now? Actually finding the stuff, which is good, is, is harder. Yes, you're, you're paying much, much more um, to get the same, same as ever. That's the annoying thing. I mean, I really resent having to subscribe to about five different channels. Look, Apple TV, for example, Apple TV has slow horses, but a lot of dross. Paramount has, well, it had the offer and it has that, that, that Kevin Costner series, which is, which is kind of good and good and bad, I would say. That, that if, if only there were, there were one place, you know, if only Netflix was all quality or if only Paramount Plus was all quality, but it's, but it's not the case. You've just got to search much, much harder. Do you think in some ways eh, it's, a, it's a good thing and that people might be encouraged to perhaps go back and find programs of old to watch or you know, pick up a book? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's, a, there's a sort of desperate feeling that I certainly experience after two hours of watching drink masters on netflix because that's the only thing i can bear after dinner you know it's a cocktail competition where mixologists it's like a bake-off from mixolog american mixologists from like indiana <laughs> and, and new mexico <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's quite impressive what they do but you know af after a while you know that that is not giving me okay to use another food metaphor the kind of mouse feel that a homeland did or that as as james says white lotus was like the the single for me like a a sort of shooting star in an otherwise kind of completely black universe. So I do end up thinking, oh, well, actually, I think I will just have to read my book. During lockdown, interestingly, when uh, a similar, I don't know, I, I, I didn't feel like there was, there was too much options. Then I sort of said to myself, right, I mean, watch Hitchcock, watch, go back and watch old stuff. But that was sort of more going into film. So I think I, I do. I think it is driving us back. But I think I, I slightly. I mean, James has been writing about these things for obviously much longer than I have, and paying attention and watching them. But when I was growing up, you know, eighties, nineties, America, maybe that was the problem. T there really wasn't much of a sort of prestige thing with TV. It really was like people watching Days of Our Lives, shamefully in the day, or Nine Hundred Two and at night, or you know, there was The Wonder Years or Saved by the Bell, or these quite nice things between 5.30 and 6 for teenagers. But it seemed to me there was a genuine novel vaulting of kind of of TV into a new stratosphere that was more akin to like, you know, Oscar winning films. And that is what I think we've lost. And so I don't think it's like, it has always been thus. I think we have seen a serious, serious nosedive. And I think a lot of viewers are feeling that and I, I just feel betrayed slightly because I gave over to the kind of this new narrative form of, of this particular thing of streaming TV that you could bulk watch. You know, I don't know if James perhaps is more restrained than me, but I can do easily two or three hours a night and, um, you know, from 10 till one or something. And, and now I feel like I'm left a bit less capable of, of sitting there and spending that same amount of time devouring a novel, which I spent my entire youth doing. So... I, I don't know if there's a way back. I feel just like, sort of like a my yeah. I've just been cast out into the sea, and the life you know the life raft is the rope has been cut, or I don't know what the metaphor is, but yeah, I don't know if there's a way back. Yeah, I, I remember being totally hooked at the time on The Sopranos, Breaking Bad. 
yes and no. I, I I wouldn't want to go back to it. I think it's 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 too painful, and I think that series went on a bit too too long. But I think I think the mind plays tricks. So the other night I was sitting down with my family having, and my son said, um, I want to watch Dad's Army. I've just got this urge to watch Dad's Army, and and, and so we thought of an episode, a classic, a supposedly classic episode that that we would would watch, and I I thought, how about the one where Arthur Wilson is 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 becomes an on an honourable, and Captain Mannering is really appalled by this, and it's 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 a great premise because because Dad's Army is partly about about snobbery and the class system and and these these tensions that arise from it, and so we watched this episode. And it was really not very funny, um, because although Croft and Perry were great writers and and they had a great team acting on Dad's Army, they made an awful lot of episodes, and I would su- suggest that that there were many duff episodes that we, we we just in in our in our minds we remember the best moments. Don't tell him, Pike, but but even Dad's Army, one of the greatest sitcoms ever had it had its really really dodgy moments i think that's the nature of tv and it's the nature of nostalgia that we we remember it to have been better than it was thank you zoe and james and that's everything this week as ever you can pick up a copy of the magazine and you'll be able to read everything we've talked about i'm Nara prendergast and i'm william moore and we hope you'll join us again next week